Volume Two, Chapter Nine of Gwen Wynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Friday. Gwen Wynn, A Romance of the Why, by Maine Reed. Chapter Nine Jealous as a Tiger. It is a little after two a.m., and the ball is breaking up. Not a very late hour, as many of the people live at a distance, and have a long drive homeward, over hilly roads. By the fashion prevailing a galop, brings the dancing to a close. The musicians, slipping their instruments into cases and baize bags, retire from the room, soon after deserted by all, save a spare servant or two, who make the rounds to look to extinguishing the lamps, with a sharp eye for waifs in the shape of dropped ribbons or bazootery gentlemen guests stay longer in the dining-room over claret and champagne cup or the more time-honoured b and s while in the hallway there is a crush and on the stairs a stream of ladies descending cloaked and hooded soon the crowd waxes thinner relieved by carriages called up quickly filling and whirled off that of squire powell is among them and captain ryecroft not without comment from certain officious observers accompanies the young lady he has been so often dancing with to the door Having seen her off with the usual ceremonies of leave-taking, he returns into the porch, and there for a while remains. It is a large portico, with Corinthian columns, by one of which he takes stand, in shadow. But there is a deeper shadow on his own brow, and a darkness in his heart, such as he has never in his life experienced. He feels how he has committed himself, but not with any remorse or repentance. Instead, the jealous anger is still within his breast, ripe and ruthless as ever nor is it so unnatural. Here is a woman, not Miss Powell, but Gwen Wynne, to whom he has given his heart, acknowledged the surrender, and in return had acknowledgment of hers, not only this, but offered his hand in marriage, placed the pledge upon her finger, she assenting and accepting. And now, in the face of all, openly, and before his face, engaged in flirtation, it is not the first occasion for him to have observed familiarities between her and the son of Sir George Shenstone, trifling, it is true, but which gave him uneasiness. But to-night things have been more serious, and the pain caused him all imbuing and bitter. He does not reflect how he has been himself behaving. For to none more than the jealous lover is the big beam unobservable, while the little mote is sharply descried. He only thinks of her ill behavior, ignoring his own. If she has been but dissembling, coquetting with him, even that were reprehensible. Heartless, he deems it, sinister, something more, an indiscretion. Flirting while engaged, what might she do when married? He does not wrong her by such direct self-interrogation. The suspicion were unworthy of himself, as of her, and as yet he has not given way to it. Still, her conduct seems inexcusable, as inexplicable and to get explanation of it he now tarries, while others are hastening away. Not resolutely. Besides the half-sad, half-indignant expression upon his countenance, there is also one of indecision. He is debating within himself what course to pursue, and whether he will go off without bidding her good-bye. He is almost mad enough to be ill-mannered, and possibly, were it only a question of politeness, he would not stand upon or be stayed by it, but there is more the very same spiteful rage hinders him from going. He thinks himself aggrieved, and therefore justifiable in demanding to know the reason, to use a slang but familiar phrase, having it out. 
just as he has reached this determination an opportunity is offered him having taken leave of miss linton he has returned to the door where he stands hat in hand his overcoat already on miss wynne is now also there bidding good night to some guests intimate friends who have remained till the last as they move off he approaches her she as if unconsciously and by the merest chance lingering near the entrance it is all pretense on her part that she has not seen him dallying about for she has several times while giving congé to others of the company equally feigned her surprise as she returns his salute saying why captain ryecroft i supposed you were gone long ago i am sorry miss wynne you should think me capable of such rudeness captain ryecroft and miss wynne instead of vivian and gwen it is a bad beginning ominous of a worse ending the rejoinder almost a rebuke places her at a disadvantage and she says rather confusedly oh certainly not sir but where there are so many people of course one does not look for the formalities of leave-taking true and availing myself of that i might have been gone long since as you supposed but for for what a word i wish to speak with you alone can i oh certainly not here he asks suggestingly she glances around there are servants hurrying about through the hall crossing and recrossing with the musicians coming forth from the dining-room, where they have been making a clearance of the cold fowl, ham, and heel-taps. With quick intelligence comprehending, but without further speech, she walks out into the portico, he preceding. Not to remain there, where eyes would still be on them, and ears within hearing. She has an Indian shawl upon her arm, throughout the night carried while promenading, and again throwing it over her shoulders, she steps down upon the graveled sweep and on into the grounds, side by side they proceed in the direction of the summer-house as many times before though never in the same mood as now and never as now so constrained and silent for not a word passes between them till they reach the pavilion there is light in it but a few hundred yards from the house it came in for part of the illumination and its lamps are not yet extinguished only burning feebly she is the first to enter he to resume speech saying there was a day miss wynne when standing on this spot i thought myself the happiest man in herefordshire now i know it was but a fancy a sorry hallucination i do not understand you captain ryecroft oh yes you do pardon my contradicting you you've given me reason indeed in what way i beg nay demand explanation you shall have it though superfluous i should think after what has been passing this night especially oh this night especially I supposed you so much engaged with Miss Powell as not to have noticed anything or anybody else. What was it, pray? You understand, I take it, without need of my entering into particulars. Indeed I don't, unless you refer to my dancing with George Shenstone. More than dancing with him, keeping his company all through. Not strange, that, seeing I was left so free to keep it. Besides, as I suppose you know, his father was my father's oldest and most intimate friend. She makes this avowal condescendingly, observing he is really vexed, and thinking the game of contraries has gone far enough. He has given her a sight of his cards, and with the quick subtle instinct of woman, she sees that among them Miss Powell is no longer chief trump. Were his perception keen as hers, their jealous conflict would now come to a close, and between them confidence and friendship, stronger than ever, be restored. Unfortunately, it is not to be. Still miscomprehending, yet unyielding, he rejoins, sneeringly, 
and I suppose your father's daughter is determined to continue that intimacy with his father's son, which might not be so very pleasant to him who should be your husband. Had I thought of that when I placed a ring upon your finger? Before he can finish, she has plucked it off, and drawing herself up to full height, says in bitter retort, You insult me, sir! Take it back! With the words, the gemmed circlet is flung upon the little rustic table from which it rolls off. He has not been prepared for such abrupt issue, though his rude speech tempted it. Somewhat sorry, but still too exasperated to confess or show it, he rejoins, defiantly, If you wish it to end so, let it. Yes, let it. They part without further speech. He, being nearest the door, goes out first, taking no heed of the diamond cluster which lies sparkling upon the floor. Neither does she touch, or think of it. Were it the Kohinoor, she would not care for it now. A jewel more precious, the one love of her life is lost, cruelly crushed. And with heart all but breaking, she sinks down upon the bench, draws the shawl over her face, and weeps till its rich silken tissue is saturated with her tears. The wild spasm passed. She rises to her feet, and stands leaning upon the baluster rail, looking out and listening. Still dark, she sees nothing but hears the stroke of a boat's oars in measured and regular repetition, listens on till the sound becomes indistinct, blending with the sough of the river, the sighing of the breeze, and the natural voices of the night. She may never hear his voice, never look on his face again. At the thought she exclaims, in anguished accent, This the ending! It is too— What she designed saying is not said. Her interrupted words are continued into a shriek, one wild cry, then her lips are sealed, suddenly, as if stricken dumb or dead, not by the visitation of God. Before losing consciousness, she felt the embrace of brawny arms, knew herself the victim of man's violence. End of chapter 9 Recording by Amanda Friday